This is the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood. In 2017 in Maine, 418 people died from drug overdoses. That's an 11% increase over the year before. It's much less than the previous year's increase, which was nearly 40%, but it's still significant. 354, or 85% of the deaths, were caused by opioids, either prescriptions, such as the painkiller oxycodone, or illegal drugs, such as heroin or fentanyl. These statistics come from the Maine Attorney General's office. Another drug, naloxone, commonly known by the brand name Narcan, was detected in 31% of the people who died of drug overdoses in 2017. That indicates that someone tried to save those people's lives. When given in time, naloxone can reverse an overdose. Maine recently passed a law that gives everyone, regardless of their age, access to naloxone without a prescription. We're going to talk about naloxone in today's Catching Health podcast, what it can and cannot do, and the role that it plays in helping to address the opioid crisis. My guest is Dr. Mark Publicker, who has practiced addiction medicine for more than 30 years. He is past president of the Northern New England Society of Addiction Medicine and was just awarded the Society's 2017 Achievement Award. He is editor-in-chief of the American Society of Addiction Medicine magazine. Currently in private practice, he is also working with the Lunder Deneen Education Alliance, which is a collaboration between the Lunder Foundation and Massachusetts General Hospital. They are developing and disseminating evidence-based education about substance abuse and addiction. I interviewed Dr. Publicker at his office in Portland, Maine. Welcome, Dr. Publicker. Thank you for being with us today. I want to talk about naloxone. Now, that's also known as Narcan and sometimes Evzio. Did I pronounce that right? That's a brand name for a type of Narcan. So there are um, a number of different products. Evzio is uh, an interesting one. It's kind of a voice-guided one that cost about $600. So we don't really need to talk about that We one. don't really need to talk about okay. that. All right. Well, before we get talking about it at all, I want to get personal with you. Okay. Uh, but I realized before I get personal, I just want to make sure that people know what naloxone is. Naloxone is an antidote for um, poisoning leading to an overdose by um, opiate drugs. Opiate drugs include such drugs as uh, oxycodone, uh, oxymorphone, um, heroin, fentanyl. Um, all of these drugs uh, belong to a class of medicines of opiates that plug into the brain's opiate receptors and activate them. If too much of an opiate is plugged into these receptors, it will suppress people's breathing and lead them to a situation of overdose. And um, if untreated, it can lead to death. So the situation is we have these receptors that are there to um, allow our natural opiates to uh, regulate pain, and mood and even immune function. So um, we have receptors for opioids um, in our brain because these are necessary and important for survival. Um, the problem is, is that um, there are opioids that have been produced synthetically that act um, in degrees of, of uh, potency many times that of what we were um, evolved to use. 
So it surpasses the brain's natural um, use of the opioids and basically uh, supplants them, replaces them. We say hijacks the brain's opioid system. So when you have the naloxone, you give that to somebody who has overdosed on one of these drugs? Right. So naloxone is uh, called an antagonist. So um, if we think about what an antagonist means, it's something that opposes. So uh, naloxone or Narcan has got an extremely great potency and attachment to the brain's opiate receptors. So if the opiate receptors are powerfully occupied by strong drugs, naloxone will displace them. And in displacing them, reverses the overdose. Temporarily? Temporarily. Um, it may be sufficient after a single dose to allow the individual to um, awaken and um, recover without subsequent treatment. Uh, with some of the drugs that we have currently, their potency and duration of action often recurs, uh, requires multiple uh, doses of Narcan to achieve um, resuscitation. Now, I said at the beginning I want to get personal, but I'm going to hold off on getting personal. Okay. I want to talk more about how this drug works, how you would even know when to use it. It would seem obvious you would know if somebody had an overdose, but maybe not? Um, you might see somebody in, somebody in the process of overdosing where people become progressively over-sedated. You may see that their breathing has slowed up. Um, and, you know, ultimately in a real overdose, somebody is unconscious. Um, they're not breathing um, progressively. They're going to turn blue because they're not breathing. So that would be a frank, full-out overdose. Again, there might be some stages leading in to the complete overdose, but overdoses as well can happen instantly depending on the drug that's used and how much is used and what the potency of the drug can use. People can um, overdose in a matter of seconds. Um, what if you just came upon somebody? How would you know that it isn't like a heart attack or something else? Um, you wouldn't. You'd probably have to look at set and setting and the individual uh, you would, might very well see uh, somebody with needles um, lying around. That would be a dead giveaway. Somebody whose uh, sleeve is rolled up and they have a tourniquet around their arm. Uh, That's pretty obvious. Um, you know, I, I think for the most part, I haven't heard of anybody mistaking a heart attack for an overdose, although in truth, somebody probably has. But um, in, um, in Maine, um, if you see somebody unconscious in blue in a bathroom at Walmart, assume that it was an overdose and not a heart attack. I'm feeling like I had asked you a stupid question, but I still I felt like it was important. No, it's a great question. So of the drugs that you mentioned, are there some drugs that you are more apt to see an overdose situation than others? Um, yes. Um, um, Back when we um, didn't have um, heroin in the state to any large extent, um, people used drugs like OxyContin. And for the most part, even though people would use extremely high doses, for the most part they snorted them. And in snorting them there was a um, reduced risk of overdose. Certainly people overdosed. Um, but. Um, there are different ways of, of using a drug. You can eat it, that is, you can swallow an OxyContin, you could grind up an OxyContin and snort it. 
um, or you could grind it up um, and um, uh, liquefy it and inject it. Well, few people went through the effort because snorting was good enough. Uh, so there, there were fewer overdoses when we were um, people were using um, um, medicinal um, opioids like oxycodone or hydrocodone. Um, uh, with the advent of heroin, now we're talking about a drug that may be uh, 10 to 50 times as potent as uh, oxycodone. And then we have drugs like fentanyl that may be 50 times as potent as heroin. Um, there's a newer drug, uh, carfentanil, which is uh, sporadically entering the state that is uh, 10,000 10, times as potent as morphine. So um, uh, the, the greater the potency, um, the greater the likelihood that somebody is uh, going to overdose. And of course, people have no idea what they're injecting. People may think they're injecting heroin, but instead may be injecting a, a mixture of heroin and fentanyl, and of course people could be just injecting fentanyl. Uh, there's no FDA um, certification for um, illicit narcotics. So you as an addiction specialist, you would know who would be at risk of overdosing. Anybody who's using an opioid could overdose. And uh, I may have misspoken. Of course, people who are prescribed um, opioid medications legitimately can overdose. Um, and there are a number of situations. I mean, typically, if somebody's being prescribed an appropriate dose of an opioid, they're not at risk of overdose. Um, if somebody's being prescribed uh, an opioid and concurrently is being prescribed a uh, benzodiazepine, a drug like Xanax or Clonopin, uh, it greatly increases the likelihood of an overdose, even in uh, possibly therapeutic situations. Um, so it's possible to overdose. Most of the overdoses occur in the setting of a combination of the opioid plus um, a drug like clonopin or Xanax. Certainly if you throw some alcohol into the mix, the likelihood and the danger of, of overdose is fairly significant. Uh, and then if we consider the uh, medical status of the individual who's being prescribed um, the opioid and possibly the benzodiazepine, uh, the, um, the shakier, the more fragile is their uh, uh, medical status, the greater the likelihood of an unintentional overdose. So we have a situation in which somebody has overdosed and Narcan is available. Yes. How is it administered? There are a number of ways in which it could be administered, um, all of which are, are effective. Um, uh, the, the two major ones is uh, intramuscular injection. There are uh, needle injectors that um, um, uh, will inject um, Narcan directly into the muscle. And uh, uh, Narcan works extremely rapidly. So um, uh, people who have overdosed will often uh, awaken almost immediately. Um, um, there's also a nasal inhaler um, uh, that's uh, very nice um, uh, because it doesn't require um, um, any particular skill. Um, think of it like an, uh, an afrin inhaler that just gets a squirt up the nose and another squirt up the other nostril and it's as effective as the injectors. So in terms of um, uh, ease of administration, uh, the, the uh, need to not educate people as, uh, enough about 
how to administer it when using injectors. It's a great and inexpensive way of uh, providing Narcan. How much would it cost? The nasal spray was interesting. It was developed uh, by a private, private company in conjunction with the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. And it cost $75 for two. Um, whereas some of the name brand products um, have had their uh, prices jumped up to $600. Um, so seeing a good market, you know, which makes sense, um, companies have sought to maximize their profit. It's somewhat akin to prices for Epi EpiPen. Right. I'm, I'm going to withhold my comments and my thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can give the dose. You're going to wait five minutes. Okay, five minutes. Call 911. The first thing you're going to do is administer the dose and call 911, period. Um, if the person hasn't responded within a few minutes, you would administer another dose. Again, if you've administered um, the uh, Narcan and called 911, the likelihood is, is that help is going to arrive very quickly. Um, if necessary, you can do rescue breathing. Um, if you're going to do rescue breathing, um, it's usually advisable to have some sort of uh, barrier um, to um, protect because people may vomit. Um, um, so, you know, I think most people probably, only heroic people are going to administer mouth-to-mouth -mouth, um, uh, resuscitation breathing. But generally speaking, Narcan and call to 911 um, is likely to suffice. There are a number of things that don't work. Uh, putting somebody in a cold shower doesn't work. Um, um, slapping them um, doesn't work. Um, uh, um, leaving them um, um, obviously uh, doesn't work. The, the challenge that we have, of course, is that um, people uh, are fearful of uh, calling for help, uh, fearing that um, they're using drugs, having paraphernalia and drugs available puts them at risk of being arrested. Um, so often people who have overdosed are abandoned. Um, Left to die. More often than not die. If um, it does work, so the person starts breathing again, could they potentially just get up and walk away and they're fine? Sometimes. Not necessarily feel fine. Um, go into opiate withdrawal. And what's that like? Um, well, opiate withdrawal is a miserable state. It's um, uh, total body pain, it's um, restlessness, it's muscle spasm, uh, it's uh, nausea, it could be diarrhea and vomiting. Usually with naloxone, you don't get that whole full picture, but you don't feel good. You are in some state of opiate withdrawal. Um, and might a person then just go and shoot up again to get rid of that feeling? And well, that, you know, that is the, the real question when you hear people um, uh, criticize the use of um, Narcan. Uh, they point to the fact that some people require um, multiple doses over uh, long periods of time. Just um, access to um, a medicine like Narcan encourage people to continue to use drugs because they know they're going to get rescued. Those of us who understand opiate addiction and understand Narcan know that uh, Narcan um, is to uh, people with opiate addiction as uh, garlic is to vampires. People do not want to go into withdrawal. 
um, it makes them sick. They're very fearful of being administered an antagonist drug. So um, people continue to use for a number of reasons after they've, um, they've been resuscitated. Um, most often it's because they haven't been offered treatment right away. Uh, some emergency rooms are beginning now to uh, begin to give people uh, buprenorphine, which is um, an effective medicine for uh, blocking withdrawal and beginning to help people um, uh, move into recovery. Actually give buprenorphine in the emergency room, give them some doses and make arrangements for them to continue treatment after their discharge. It, it boggles my mind to hear you say some are starting to. When we have been in this crisis situation for years now, um, not necessarily administering the buprenorphine, but to offer some kind of treatment. Well, the only effective treatment in this setting would be buprenorphine. Uh, counseling doesn't work in this setting. Counseling wouldn't work anyway. Um, giving somebody an effective medicine which is going to block um, opiate withdrawal, which is going to normalize their brain very quickly, which is what buprenorphine does, prevent them from continuing to use because buprenorphine has a strong attachment to the receptor, doesn't allow other narcotics to uh, plug in as a tremendous, marvelous, miraculous treatment. If administered, is going to help people stay sober. Now, uh, when I said some, some sounds like we're talking about a lot. Uh, some may mean um, a couple, maybe one in the state, maybe um, um, a dozen in the whole country. So this has not yet been uh, adopted um, as a standard of care. There are a number of reasons for that, um, one of which is stigma um, held by emergency room personnel. Against the person who comes in who's overdosed? Against people with opiate addiction. Of course, they're the ones who, who often see people coming with opiate addiction and people carry with them their own prejudices and beliefs. And, you know, those people that are exposed to people who are constantly coming in are going to uh, develop beliefs about the individuals. Um, so stigma is part of that lack of training and knowledge. Um, you know, the question is, uh, how many uh, medical professionals uh, understand opiate addiction? And the answer is vanishingly few. And yet it's such a crisis. It's such a crisis, and yet, um, you know, let's think about what's happened in Maine. And what's happened in Maine is nothing. You know, there have been task forces after task forces after task forces. Um, every city has had one, two, or three. There have been how many state task forces? Uh, there have been um, um, bills put forth over the legislature repeatedly. Money has been allocated that hasn't been spent. Um, what exactly has been done to combat Maine's um, overdose death rate? And, you know, honestly, the answer is virtually nothing. And the reason for that, in your opinion, is the lack of understanding about what really needs to be done? Um, People's personal opinions? People hold beliefs about what needs to be done. Um, there is um, uh, some people who hold the belief that um, using a medicine like uh, buprenorphine is substituting a drug for a drug and therefore are opposed to it. Um, there are uh, people who, quite frankly, um, um, go beyond don't like people with opiate addiction, but frankly hate 
people with opiate addiction see it as a willful disorder as opposed to an involuntary disease, have their own personal feelings and experiences with uh, family members and friends who are um, opiate addicted. So we have uh, stigma, we have ignorance of uh, what is the uh, state of the science in terms of treatment. Uh, we have um, beliefs um, that um, uh, run contrary to what the science tells us in terms of what is treatment. Uh, there are plenty of people within the recovering community and within um, treatment um, programs uh, who are um, opposed to the use of medication for treatment. Um, too many 12-step programs reject people who come to them seeking 12-step uh, recovery but are rejected because uh, they're on maintenance medication. I thought everybody was welcome. You would think everybody would be welcome, and certainly there are meetings where they are, but very, very often uh, people are criticized and rejected because they're on medication. They're regarded to still be on a drug. Now, the irony here, of course, is that uh, people go to AA meetings all the time intoxicated with alcohol and are not rejected. Um, all right, so I'm going to make you the czar, since you are an addiction specialist. Okay. You're the czar, so you are going to figure out how to fix this problem, in Maine at least. How will you do it? Um, it's an interesting question. I think about this a lot. Um, and um, I don't think I know the answer. I can say that um, making um, um, medications like buprenorphine um, uh, so available that they're available on uh, basically request would be a good start. Um, all that um, sounds great, but we live in this large rural state. Uh, we live in a state that has um, uh, um, large numbers of uninsured people. Um, we have working people without easy access to medical treatment anyway. So um, making a broad statement that um, um, if everybody had uh, medical insurance and uh, there were as many doctors and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who treat um, opiate addiction the way they treat blood pressure, um, uh, would we um, have um, a better um, recovery rate? Would we have fewer overdoses? I think the answer is yes. The problem is that opiate addiction is very tenacious. Um, um, it's um, um, a uh, wicked disease. What I'd like to emphasize to people is to understand when people become opiate addicted, there's no longer a pursuit of the high. There's only a desperate search to escape the negative, the chronic state of withdrawal, or the danger of going into withdrawal if the drug is not made available to them. I didn't realize that. So if I didn't, there must be a lot of people who think, yeah, think they're only true. looking for the high, but they're trying to not feel the horrible low. Looking at this from a um, neurobiologic standpoint, when people initially use a drug like an opiate, they will experience often, not all of us, in fact, not most of us, a state of um, tremendous euphoria, um, powerfully reinforcing. Uh, the problem is the brain has got adaptive mechanisms that um, 
are designed to prevent us from staying in a state that really is not um, um, helpful for survival. We can't, um, you know, as we evolved, um, experience a profound euphoric effect um, uh, without an adaptation leaves us um, in danger of being eaten by saber-toothed tigers. So the brain is designed to try to maintain us in a state of normal ability to experience pleasure and reward from life. Uh, the problem is the more powerful the drug, the more frequently administered, these adaptive changes move people progressively into a negative reinforced state, a state of depressed mood, anxiety, uh, physical discomfort, spiritual malaise. The more you use, the deeper is that hole and the less available is the any positive euphoric effect. Eventually people reach a state where the only thing that they are desperately seeking is to avoid the inevitable withdrawal if they don't obtain the drug. When you speak with people who have been opiate addicted, they'll tell you is the worst thing is waking up in the morning and having to begin a search. How do I get the drug? How can I afford the drug? Um, and uh, desperate, because as the hours tick by, the more likely it is you're going to get sick. So the withdrawal state, the negative reinforced state, is what drives drug addiction. So can anybody become addicted, or are some people prone to it or genetically disposed to it or what? It's a really good question. Um, probably 90% of people who are given an opioid won't like them. I think a lot of us have had the situation where we've had some pain or had some surgery and were offered an oxycodone and um, um, it doesn't make us feel good. It may make us feel sleepy, it may make us feel um, uh, logy. Um, 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 so, I mean, more often than not, most people given opioids have um, opioid receptors uh, that don't like excessive stimulation from external drugs. About 10% of people have a different uh, receptor. And um, um, you can have people who have never uh, used an opioid or have had a drug problem um, given uh, an oxycodone and um, Amazingly, they discovered they have energy that they did not know they had. That the world is brighter, things look wonderful. And it's shocking and surprising, and those people are more likely to go on to develop addiction. The problem is the brain becomes tolerant to the effect of, uh, of any um, opioid taken. So the greater the tolerance, the more it needs to be taken to re-achieve um, a state that it's like um, shifting sand. The more you use, the less you get, the more the negative. But initially, when people use opioids, it, um, they'll describe it as a, as a state of energy, as a stimulant. In fact, um, it's interesting. I hear all the time women say that when they take OxyContin, they're able to clean their houses. And it's my observation. I've actually never had a man say that. <laughs> I remember years ago, I had my appendix out. And they gave me something that night that felt more wonderful than I'd ever felt before, from the tips of my toes right on up to my head. And the next morning I said, they came in to see how I was, and I said, well, I still have a little pain. Could I have some more of that stuff you gave me last night? And they said, absolutely not. So you can see the danger, because things can become very, develop very innocently. Now, the other 
um, problem is um, in our um, community, in our culture, um, drug use begins very, begins very early. Um, um, early meaning it's not uncommon for me to um, have patients who started their drug use at 12, 13, or 14. Now, whatever you've heard that marijuana is not a gateway drug, um, it is. Uh, there are very few of my patients who didn't initiate their drug use with, uh, with cannabis. So cannabis definitely is a gateway drug, and I don't think anybody with opiate addiction would, um, would deny that. So you must have some strong opinions about cannabis being legalized. Well, you know, I just, now we're going off a bit on a side, but, but if I could, um, you know, the state already has decriminalization. The problem with legalization is marketing and, and expanding the market. So um, uh, if you look at the products that um, um, big cannabis produces, there are candies that look like gummy bears, there are soft drinks that have bright colors, and all of these are designed to attract children. Um, just like Big Tobacco originally tried to develop products to attract children. And these, um, these um, edibles are extremely dangerous. So I think that people need to be realistic and understand that marijuana has real negative consequences. As the drug becomes normative in terms of its use, I think people fail to realize that there are real dangers involved. Um, Smoking marijuana in a closed room with your baby. Um, uh, babies are inhaling active, psychoactive drug, no question. Um, um, does it affect driving? Absolutely. Um, so there are a number of, of circumstances in which uh, marijuana, um, which may be benign for many people, isn't for many others. And there are compounds within the plant that right. are do different things. Some are stronger or more potent. Well, they've. Um, 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 it's almost genetically engineered plants. So that uh, when I was in college, um, um, the dosage range for cannabis was a around three percent, and now it's possible to have uh, uh, THC, the active. Um, uh, ingredient and 40, 50, 60 percent. So we're talking about a different drug. Um, so, um, but um, getting back to this issue about um, um, vulnerability, um, the adolescent brain is um, very, uh, the term is plastic. Unlike the adult where the brain is pretty set, the adolescent brain is still rewiring itself, and there's an explosion about 13, 14 of new nervous system connections that, you know, over the course of adolescence into young adulthood, adolescence and uh, those brains are kind of remodeling themselves. They're experiencing life, unnecessary um, uh, connections get pruned away, and then a sense of identity develops. And, an understanding of how to live one's life in terms of dealing with adversity, et cetera. Um, um, the earlier the exposure to drugs, um, the greater the likelihood that that's disrupting this normal stage of important brain development and increases the likelihood of lifelong uh, problems of addiction to those drugs. So when we have um, exposure early 
to not only cannabis, but I, I certainly see uh, people who started using opioids at 12, 13, or 14. Um, so in those cases, when these people reach 23, 24, 25, they've had a life, lifetime of uh, drug addiction. And in this era, we're talking about um, dramatic increases in potency and availability. So, From your point of view, why do we have this crisis now? Where, where did it really begin? Well, um, it actually began um, innocently enough in the 1990s. Um, a group of um, very ethical um, scientists, uh, physicians, um, uh, researchers um, in the early to mid-90s um, um, uh, came up with the um, concept that um, it was unethical not to treat chronic non-cancer pain with opioids. And the premise was that if you had um, a pain, um, you could not become addicted. That in some way the uh, pain syndrome itself changed the brain's response to opioids so that you could not become addicted. Not only that, but that long-acting opioids were superior to short-acting opioids and that whatever level of pain that a patient complained about, that was the patient's pain that you had to respond to. So any dosage that was needed um, should be given. So there were people who were proposing thousands of milligrams of, of opioids. So this actually became a standard of care. We're still seeing some of this left over. It's still like the uh, echoes of the Big Bang um, that we're still seeing. There's a, uh, Joint Commission, which is the major um, um, organization that evaluates hospitals, uh, requires um, um, hospitals to um, evaluate the um, um, the f uh, fifth vital sign, which is to assess for pain and then respond by um, treating pain. So um, there's also there's already a requirement that's lasted that you have to evaluate pain and treat pain um, as you would fever or blood pressure. Um, so th this went on um, a very significant um, uh, major um, medical societies, the most major medical societies endorsed this uh, and endorsed the use of long-acting opioids. 1996 comes along and the pharmaceutical company Purdue Frederick comes up with OxyContin and my patients came in the door within minutes saying this is the greatest drug they had ever found. Um, so, um, and it exploded from there. When I moved to Maine in 2002, I was already aware of the prescription drug epidemic. It had already been going on here for six years. You just had to read between the lines of the newspapers to see it. It took about another four or five years for it to become really apparent. But it started out innocently with a wrong belief that people could not become addicted um, if they had pain, that any amount of opioid was what people needed if they asked for it. And have we pulled back on prescribing these now? So as we began to pull back about four years ago or five years ago, and they reformulated OxyContin to make it less abusable, paradoxically, they opened up the door for heroin to come in. Um, 
Um, opioids are, I have to use the term, they're fungible, like squeezing a balloon. They don't go away if you limit access to one type of opioid, the addiction is still there. Um, and it has to be um, met, and it could be met by treatment with buprenorphine, of course, it wasn't very often. So people move from prescription opioid addiction into uh, heroin addiction. The cartels were very quick to recognize that Maine had this vast um, market uh, of opioids, and if you wanted to sell a product like heroin, this was the place to go. What makes us so special? We had among the highest rates of prescription opioid um, um, use in the country. So you've been in practice as an addiction specialist for 30 years? Since 1983. What brought you into this field? Um, I was practicing family medicine just out of my residency in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, most of my patients were steel workers. And uh, I had come from suburban New York, and I had no knowledge about alcohol. There was no education. And I kept on seeing these very nice big guys coming in with uncontrollable blood pressures and elevated um, liver functions. And I was puzzled. And uh, I came to believe there was some industrial poisoning going on. And somebody loaned me a book about alcoholism, and I woke up and slapped my forehead and said, oh my goodness, half my patients are alcoholic. So at that point, because it was very little education available for doctors, I had to go out and pursue it. Um, you know, as I began to work with patients, um, um, I started to get God bless you letters. About six months into it, you know, and if you're practicing medicine, diabetics never send you God bless you letters. Um, so it was very powerful um, to see people liver functions get better, blood pressure get controlled, and the people became better human beings. Uh, so that was very powerful. That was reinforcing for me. So that was the fish hook. It got me. And it's turned out to be everything you expected in terms of how you've been able to change people's lives? Well, I've got the greatest job in the world, you know, because I get to see people who are um, really in, in desperate, 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 desperate states when they come in and be able to see them beautiful. When we were at the recovery center and we would... This was at Mercy Hospital. At Mercy, we would admit ho homeless alcoholics and, um, you know, not infrequently you could see people one, two, or three years later volunteering in the community. Trying to help other people, giving service. Very beautiful thing. It's a, it's a great field. What's the hardest lesson that you've had to learn in these 30 years? Perhaps other people's uh, stigma against um, the, my patients and against the treatment that I offer um, uh, may be the most difficult. It's something that I've come to accept and understand, but it harms my patients. must have been frustrating for you to see this bill in the legislature that would have made naloxone available to anybody regardless of age, only it got vetoed and they tried to add age limits, and now I guess the bill has passed, was vetoed by the governor, and the legislature just overrode that veto. So now we do have a law in Maine, I don't know when it actually takes effect, that naloxone will be available without a prescription, no age limit. Right, well, the, you know, the terrible thing is that the, um, 
the way the original bill passed um, that went to the um, Board of Pharmacy to set up rules never needed to go to the governor's office. It could, the Board of Pharmacy could have just made up the rules and submitted them and we would have had this two years ago. But they decided to put an age limit. First was at 18 and then they moved it to 21? Well, you tried. know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably a, a skeptic here. The question is how many 18-year-olds are actually going to go into a pharmacy mm -hmm. and uh, ask for um, Narcan that they're going to carry around in case somebody they know has an overdose. So I, I think that um, um, the broader issue for me is uh, first, I do think that anybody should be able to have, uh, be able to get Narcan without a, a prescription, certainly. It should be freely available. Uh, you know, quite frankly, if we really want to make it available, um, make it over the counter. Um, we're talking about an uncontrolled substance that can save lives. Um, there's no reason not for it to be widely available. In order for this to be effective, um, it needs to be all over. You know, we have AEDs all over buildings. Um, we need to have Narcan available just as um, frequently as there are AEDs, perhaps even more so. What do you mean by AEDs? You know, the automatic defibrillators. Right, AED, you said. Yeah. Yes, they are. You see them they're hanging everywhere. Well, Narcan, it's more likely people are going to die of an overdose and have a heart attack in front of you. Somebody said to me the other day, they should make Narcan, everybody should have some. Well, that's what the uh, CDC director said, and I thought that was kind of absurd. Um, you know, most of us are not going to encounter somebody. Uh, I know I'm not trying to figure out which pocket I would carry my Narcan with. Um, I don't think most women are going to carry it in their pocketbooks. Um, however, there are places where Narcan should be available. Um, public bathrooms. People go into bathrooms to inject. And um, um, restaurant bathrooms, uh, um, stores like Walmart, are places where f people very frequently overdose. So availability for Narcan in those settings is really important. When does this bill actually take effect? Okay. But when it does, it, it's without a prescription, but not necessarily over-the-counter? No, have to it's ask not over-the-counter. You have to ask the pharmacist. And ironically, it has been legal for doctors to have done um, 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 open prescriptions, standing orders, so that anybody could go into a pharmacy and under my standing order be given um, Narcan. Actually, I and a number of other doctors have done standing orders, but of course, how would people know that? So actually, availability would have been very easy had it just been um, um, publicized that standing orders were present in every pharmacy. So the, the issue would have been um, 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 unnecessary. However, um, the, more the, the more available, the better. I, um, I'm skeptical that there's going to be a rush to pharmacies for people to obtain uh, Narcan, I think that it should be widely available um, in public places, and it needs to be seen as an antidote or first aid, not as a treatment. I've got a statistic here. 418 people died from overdoses in Maine in 2017. Opioids, including prescription and illicit drugs, were responsible for 354 of those deaths.
some of those deaths might have been prevented had naloxone been readily well, I, available. I think it's fair to say that if naloxone had been available, we're probably talking in a one-to-one -one basis. If Narcan was available, that individual likely would have been resuscitated. Um, the figure this year undoubtedly is going to be quite a bit higher. Uh, fentanyl is far more um, common. There isn't a day that goes by I don't have a patient tell me about a relative or friend who has died. So if in my small corner of the universe I'm hearing this all the time, uh, I'm assuming that the rates are still escalating. We're going to have to continue our conversation, I think, at another time and talk about the problem in general and specifically what some of these newer drugs are. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is important? No, we covered a lot here, Diane. Well, I appreciate very much your taking the time to shed some light on the opiate problem here in Maine, on naloxone, and all the other important points that we touched upon. You've got your work cut out for you, don't you? Yeah. I've been talking with Dr. Mark Publicker. He's an internationally renowned addiction specialist. You are listening to the Catching Health Podcast. I'll be right back with some additional information. Normally, in Maine, bills become effective 90 days after a legislative session ends. Because of the opioid crisis, the Narcan bill was considered emergency legislation and took effect immediately after it was approved. If you would like to read the bill, as well as the report from the Attorney General's Office on drug-induced deaths in 2017, I will provide links to both on my blog, catchinghealth.com, along with links to addiction resources and show notes for this episode. While you're there, feel free to look around. You will find a wealth of information from current health news and expert advice from medical professionals to fitness and nutrition tips. I'm Diane Atwood, host and producer of the Catching Health Podcast. <laughs>